Welcome to Paychecks Thrive, a business podcast where you'll hear timely insights to help you navigate marketplace dynamics and propel your business forward. Here's your host, Gene Marks. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Thrive. My name is Gene Marks. Thanks so much for joining us today. And with me today, my guest is Lynn Alden. Lynn is the founder of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy. I am an avid follower of her on Twitter. Lynn, I have to say, whenever um, if I ever respond or anything to any of your tweets, it always gets like a ton of engagement. I mean, I don't know who your followers are, but they're 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 either a loyal bunch or they're a crazy bunch, uh, which you probably don't even want to figure that out. But um, it's a great it's a great Twitter account. You do great work. Um, you analyze the economy. Tell us a little bit about yourself and and what what you do and what your company does. Uh, sure. So my background is actually initially in engineering, uh, but I've been interested in finance my whole life, and I eventually transitioned towards. Um, you know, in, in the kind of the financial side of engineering, so overseeing the budget, technical budget, head engineer of a facility. Uh, but eventually, I transitioned out of that to actually focus on uh, macroeconomic research. And it's kind of an interesting pivot, but it's something that I actually I started investing even before I was an engineer, and I kind of kept it up all along. And I, you know, my my master's degree was was in um, engineering management with a focus on like financial modeling and engineering economics and wow. that kind of thing. And so I, I kind of just combined a lot of the, the background I had to start looking at the kind of the macro economy from the end uh, lens of like systems analysis. And so I, I kind of just come at it from a different angle. And so I've been I've been publishing research uh, for both institutional and uh, retail audiences since 2016 um, in various capacities. Uh, and so that's that's primarily what I do. Basically, there's been a trend where um, a lot of investment firms, they, they outsource some of their analysis instead of having you know, tons of analysts in-house, um, they can use, you know, economies of scale to have certain analysts that they, you know, subscribe to. In addition, you know, uh, basically, um, in addition to all the inside, uh, you know, analysts they have to kind of form their investment picture. So I, I try to add my piece of the puzzle, you could say. That is amazing. Do you specialize in any industry per se? Or you said you, you take a macroeconomic approach, so I guess that's the economy on the whole? I do. There's a couple of areas that I specialize in and a couple of areas that I avoid just having no edge. So the areas that I tend to focus on are macroeconomics, um, anything money-related, energy, uh, commodities, um, whereas, for example, anything related to like biotech or certain sectors uh, I tend to avoid. I also have gotten into digital assets to varying degrees, basically understanding how the technology there can influence some of the ways that, that things operate now. Um, so those those are kind of my areas of focus. And you haven't, um, I mean, you don't have to disclose any of your clients, but are, are, would you say most of your clients are like investment managers, investment type of companies, or do you have clients that are actually, you know, regular B2B or in private industry themselves that has somebody like you on retainer to tell them where things are going? Yeah, it's actually both. Um, the The sweet spot that I tend to aim for is institutional type of research, but in plain English. And the kind of the benefit of that is that institutional people like it because it's you know it's it's the content they need in plain English, and then also uh, more you know businesses or more sophisticated uh, retail investors. You know, like let's say you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, you're an engineer, uh, you're a small business owner, you're you're you know you want to know what's going on, but you're not you know you know you're just you're full time focused on your work and you want to have tabs on what's going on with your investments or things out there. That's the kind of people that would generally subscribe to my research. So that pretty big range. Um, you've been doing this, you said since 2016, um, you know, and, and I realize, okay, so that's not decades worth of work, but I, yeah, I, I gotta get your, your thoughts just initially what you and I are talking now, it's the middle of February. 
is is this economy just a really difficult thing to read for somebody like yourself? I mean, when I speak to other economists, um, I hear again and again that it's a very unique situation we're in. And, you know, there are all sorts of conflicting data about where the economy is going. You know, we have, you know, historically low unemployment and yet uh, here we have an inflationary environment and interest rates, you know, rising. And we have some, you know, retail sales bottoming out a little bit, but the construction industry very busy right now. It just, it, it's a very, very difficult economy to predict. Do you find it that way or do you feel that it's clearer than most? I do find it very difficult. There are periods of time where it's clearer than others. There's certain inflection points where I, I feel like I have greater clarity on what's going on and other times where there's there's pivots and I'm kind of in this period of re- reassessment. So my my level of confidence for any given analysis will will, will fluctuate over the course of quarters and, and years depending mm-hmm. on the, you know, the nuances. Generally what I I've, I've found is that a lot of what's happened in the past few years has been uh, relatively unprecedented, you know, in terms of obviously shutting down an economy, having massive amounts of stimulus, uh, all this kind of stuff working through the system. Um, one kind of like a, a, a starter kit or cheat code you could say I've had for kind of making sense of some of this is looking back at the 1940s. Um, you know, as it started to unfold back in, you know, even even actually in 2019, but also then especially in 2020 when it actually started to happen. I did a lot of research on the 1940s uh, and and kind of the end of the 1930s. Um, and that's the last time we had kind of like these this large fiscal driven type of inflation. Mm. So when people think of inflation, they think of the 1970s where there, there actually has been other inflationary periods uh, in history. And a lot of these characteristics that we're seeing happened in similar ways in the 1940s. Obviously, instead of a, a pandemic, you had a war. Uh, a lot of things were happening on a bigger scale, but actually a lot of the macroeconomic indicators and, and, and factors that were happening were kind of similar uh, between those two periods. And I found that that's an, an interesting analog to at least be aware of because then things seem a little bit less crazy when you look at it through that lens. You wrote in your December newsletter, and I'm going to quote out, you said, um, this is back in December, my base case, unless or until I see evidence to the contrary, is for worsening economic conditions in the first half of 2023 continuing the trend of disinflation versus demand suppression. I'm going to ask you about that in a minute. Um, U.S. corporate profit margins are likely to go sideways or down, and economic activity is likely to be sluggish and potentially recessionary. Now, we've already seen, as results have been released for end of the year, corporate profits have been sideways or down. But do you still hold to that prediction that you made back in December that you are looking at a a down, a worsening of economic conditions in 2023? Uh, Roughly speaking, I've kind of pushed back my base case a little bit. Um, When we look back at the last cycle, the last 10 years, uh, you had these three mini cycles actually in it. You had your periods of accelerating economy and then decelerating economic growth. Uh, with the difference being that those those decelerating periods never turned into actual recessions, right? So you had a slower growth, a near recession, you could call it, uh, rather than outright recession. Usually has some sort of mild pivot in terms of fiscal monetary policy that kind of kickstarted the next cycle. And what we've been seeing in the past few months is that we're at the border there where it looks like one of those, um, you know, kind of mid-cycle like decelerations. You're kind of at stall speed. Yeah. And then the the, the big question is whether or not that's going to fall into a recession or whether that can actually pivot back up into another, you know, kind of mini cycle of growth uh, in this economic cycle. And I think a lot of that's going to come down to this year due to liquidity dynamics. Um, and so on one hand, you have obviously you have deceleration of most economic indicators. You have a, a Federal Reserve that's tightening interest rates and reducing their balance sheet. 
uh, you know, that you have uh, the the high interest rates have kind of squeezed out interest rate sensitive uh, industries. So housing, uh, technology stocks that were based on very high valuations and constantly issuing equity at those valuations. So those kinds of things have been more impaired than other parts of the economy. Uh, this is offset somewhat by just the sheer amount of kind of fiscal deficits that are happening. Mm-hmm. So if you think of fiscal deficits as essentially a form of stimulus, um, you know, at the cost of inflation and other other you know costs down the line, but when they're happening, they're essentially stimulus. And right now we're kind of running, you know, 1.4, 1.5 trillion dollar annualized, you know, fiscal deficits. Yep. And so you kind of have that structural backdrop that's that's somewhat nominally at least bullish. Um, and so th- those are kind of the two conflicting things. I think a challenge is that from here until the the debt ceiling issue, which is you know roughly the middle of the year, third quarter, um, you have kind of the Treasury offsetting a lot of the Federal Reserve's liquidity drain. So the Federal Reserve is decreasing their balance sheet, raising interest rates. The Treasury general account has actually been draining their cash balance, which is actually positive for liquidity because they kind of have their money like locked away in a void. Um, you know, they they tax uh, and 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 issue debt to bring in money that they haven't spent yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, kind of like how they, you know, like if you were a household and suddenly your your you know your ability to issue new debt or income went away, but you still had cash savings, you could keep paying your bills for a while. The treasury's kind of in that phase right now, and so that's actually positive for liquidity. It's offsetting some of the Fed quantitative tightening. Uh, and so I think things still look decent for the next uh, several months. And I think the big question is what happens in the in the back half of this year when you don't have the Treasury offsetting the Fed anymore. You know, you had mentioned about demand suppression, you know, sometime during 2023. I mean, household wealth, you had a chart that shows that household wealth is still uh, as a percentage, it's still historically strong, but it's it's been declining since you know the the, pan, the, the height that it hit during the pandemic. Credit card spending is up as well. Um, I just saw this past week that uh, the mortgage delinquencies are starting to trickle up as well, or tick up, you know, in the wrong direction. And, and you know, in this because we have continuing inflation, wages not keeping up with inflation, and you know, interest rates. You know, still relatively high with with the threat and you know very strong probability that the Fed will raise them even more. Um, when does that demand suppression you know, kick in? I mean, in the end, it is about the consumer, isn't it? And you you feel like the consumer doesn't have long to go before they really start putting on the brakes. But we're not seeing it yet, are we? Yeah, I think we've seen it around the margins. We, we've seen it in certain industries, mm. and so that's actually what complicates this. It's a very industry-specific thing. So you have you've seen it in in housing, you've seen it in in uh, you know tech, yeah. uh, and a couple other areas that can obviously eventually ripple through to other things. I mean, you know, basically people that are you know. Uh, that lost their tech jobs or that are going to go out to eat less, for example, that can ripple through everything else. Uh, but so far, the things that are not directly like heavily impacted by interest rates, things like restaurants or travel in general, those areas still look quite strong. I don't really see much of a deceleration in the data there. Um, we all, you know, if you look at labor, obviously the labor market is is the strongest part of this current market. You know, so I, I have like a, you know, in my in my client reports, I have like a grid where I look at all the different areas of the economy, uh, kind of a heat map for what's what's maybe you know what's accelerating or deceleration, but also what's what's strong or weak versus other things at the same time. And right now, labor is the the key area. But even if you look around the margins, there like overtime hours or uh, temporary help services, those have been decelerating. Those are kind of these slightly more volatile leading indicators of labor. Um, so we have kind of early signs of labor softening. 
Um, but really, if, if you're currently in, in some of those non-heavily impacted industries, it's still quite unclear uh, you know, whether or not they're going to uh, have a significant downturn. I mean, I think there's there's a lot of pent-up demand still there is. Uh, for things that were essentially un you know, underbought for like a, you know, two plus year period, they're now being kind of consumed pretty readily. You talk about that heat map of industries that, you know, are, are, are doing better than others. And it's been very, very tough over the past year or two to say, is the U.S. in a recession? It just kind of depends on what industry you're talking about and where you are. And, you know, where, you know, you know there are other factors that determine it's a big country. Um, so what, what does your heat map tell you? What, what industries are you seeing still strong um, that, you know, I'm, I'm curious because we have a lot of listeners that are operating businesses in those industries. And I'm curious to see if they would validate that. Yeah. So basically across the board, you have a deceleration in rate of change terms compared to what you saw, say the, the you know, most, the peak of say 2021 stimulus, for example. Um, so you do see a deceleration mostly across the board, except for a handful of industries that are very travel or dining oriented. Right. Um, so those are the strongest areas. Labor in general, you know, is is quite strong. The weakest areas are housing, um, uh, you know, or, or or tech that's like unprofitable, like you know, uh, either either in private equity or in public markets. Uh, and a reason for that, uh, people often uh, think of tech as less interest rate sensitive than housing. But if you have an environment where a company is designed to be unprofitable. Uh, for like a foreseeable future, and you're just constantly focused on growth, 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 growth. You're out, you're issuing very expensive equity to fund the fact that you're you're not actually profitable, and that's reliant on investors continuing to to mop up that expensive equity issue. That's also how you're paying your part of your employee salaries in many cases, just ongoing, uh, you know, equity there. And so when a higher interest rate, a higher hurdle rate slams down the valuations for those, um, suddenly that kind of um compensation and investor mechanism goes away. And so those companies actually have to raise prices and try to be a little bit less unprofitable or, or you know, kind of air towards profitability at, at an earlier date. But that actually then slows down their growth because it's like part of the prior growth they had was unsustainable. It was based on unsustainable pricing. Sure. Uh, and so when they actually get back to uh, a more sustainable pricing trend, their real rate of growth is slower, and then that further hurts the valuation. So I, I think we're seeing a big uh, kind of a reset there, reset of expectations and growth and figuring out what, what percentage of that was actually malinvestment. Um, so basically, it's, it's those interest rate sensitive ones, the housing, the tech, areas that were uh, in many cases over-invested in in the, in the 2010s decade. I mean, you know, just tons of software stuff was made. Yeah. Uh, I think we're seeing consolidation there, whereas a lot of stuff that kind of stagnated, you know, financial services, banks, um, travel, uh, things like that, uh, they're they're still, uh, as, as far as my indicators are concerned, doing quite well. Yeah, the banks released earnings this last quarter, and none of them are raising any red flags. And they're still saying that spending is still good, and their 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 customers are still in good shape. They're they're socking yeah. away reserves, you know, because yeah. they're they're concerned about the future. But no one, even like Jamie Dimon, who is not necessarily the most you know uh, the optimistic guy about you know the economy, uh, still can't say you know at Citigroup whether or not you know they're having issues. It seems like you know things are still rolling along. But you do talk about interest rate, you know, interest rate sensitivities. So here's what I'm seeing. Like, you know, my my practice, we have about 600 clients um, all up and down the East Coast near Philly, near where you live, um, in Jersey and, you know, Pennsylvania. And um, the, um, you know, a, a lot of them are already telling me that they're starting to feel a little bit of a pinch when it comes to interest. They're, uh, the interest that they're paying for working capital loans, for equipment loans, for, for loans for property. Um, it, it, for some of them that are less credit worthy is, you know, it's, it's going into the double digit area. 
Um, and that's a concern. And I see that impacting them and their ability to get additional financing and grow, buy inventory, buy equipment, you know, move their, operate their businesses. I, I see that as, you know, potential problems. So number one, I'm going to ask, I'd like to ask you if you agree or if you're seeing the same thing. And then the second part to that question, again, on interest rates is that the consumer businesses that you mentioned, the retail, restaurants, travel, the ones that are not as, as interest rate sensitive, um, if I make an argument that, you know, credit card debt continues to spiral as it is right now, and as rising interest rates impact credit cards as well, could that have an in, you know impact on those consumers, making those non-interest rate industries more sensitive to interest rate increases? If that makes sense. Let's go to the the first part first about my clients that are operating in a manufacturing and distribution environment. Do you have the same concerns about their availability of capital and the cost they have to pay? Absolutely. So interest rate sensitivity is kind of a spectrum, right? There's ones where it impacts uh, bigger and faster. Uh, but at the end of the day, almost every anything that involves equity or debt is going to be somewhat interest rate sensitive. Yeah. It's just a matter of degrees. And so we see it first show up in either in uh, you know industries that are very very debt heavy, so you get into real estate, or ones that are very very equity heavy, which is which is technology constantly issuing issuing new equity rather than earning profits. So those are kind of the the, the canaries in the coal mine. Um, then you have a couple of things that trickle up from there. So one is you know uh, part of the reason monetary policy operates with a lag is that some debt is. Fixed rate, uh, either on a short term or you know medium term, longer term, is just as that over time starts to come due and get refinanced, that uh, eventually pushes up the average uh, you know interest expense of, of a business. Uh, and then if you are in those businesses that have you know uh, you know various credit lines or various um, things that adjust pretty quickly, you're also impacted as well. And so that depends on how big that is relative to the size of your business, sure. right? So that that can impact almost everyone, and it depends how big that is. So if that's a very large percentage of a business, then obviously that that comes down to the bottom line pretty quickly, and then that affects hiring and everything else. And then for the second part of your question, that then trickles into the consumer. If we look back at the at the recession after the dot com bubble. Um, that was actually a pretty mild recession, and you can see where it emanated from. It obviously it emanated from tech. A lot of these things that people you know, people thought they had wealth, people thought they had you know uh, sustainable businesses. It turns out they didn't. You started to get kind of layoffs from there, and that kind of trickled out to make everything else soft over time. Uh, even if they weren't you know in a bubble themselves, you know if you're a restaurant and you know that's that's serving people that are in a bubble, you're obviously going to be impaired as well. And I think we're seeing a similar thing here, where you you know you start from certain areas. In this case, it's it's tech again, but it's also uh, real estate. And it's also, you know, if you're if you're a very, um, uh, you know, your business relies on on access to cheap credit, obviously you're going to be impaired as well. And I think we start trickling out from there. I'm a little bit less worried than than some seem to be about credit card debt because we are moving up very quickly. But if you look at the amount of credit card debt relative to, say, the amount of incomes or the amount of GDP. Uh, you know, whatever kind of metric you want to use, it actually puts it relative to something else. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still actually below the average of the 2010s decade. Uh, so it's not as though they're getting really, really in debt. They're just going back up from what was a pretty low basis uh, in the past few years. And also, that's actually, you know, that's still a pretty small percentage of the economy. That that obviously impacts certain people very, very significantly. But in an 
an overall kind of economic um, environment, that's kind of around the margins. Um, so I, I do think that over time is starting to gradually trickle through and could lead to softness. And you kind of you can kind of see it emanating out from those most sensitive uh, uh, industries to the less sensitive ones over time. For those of you listening and watching, I'm talking to Lynn Alden um, on her Twitter account, Lynn Alden Contact. Um, you know, Lynn just mentioned uh, your the percentage of credit card debt on February 8th. She made a really interesting post showing how uh, credit card debt is a percentage of assets. If you're going to make it relative to something, is still, you know, below what it was back in the 2010s. So there is, um, you know, there, there's there's room for that to move. We, no one should be panicking about that yet. It's all relative. We all have to put this in a historical perspective. And uh, Lynn does an amazing job of doing that. Lynn, in the final few minutes that we have, um, let's talk a little bit about the national debt. Uh, we're going to come up to this whole debt ceiling debate. Um, we're going to hit that limit sometime in mid-2023. It's going to be all over the news. So prepare us for that. What what are the implications of that? Why should we care as business owners? We've been hearing this fight going on in Washington literally for decades, you know, going back to, you know, George W. Bush. Uh, so tell me, tell me why we should we should even care at this point. So there's the, the near-term question and the long-term question. So the near-term, the actual debt ceiling debate itself, uh, that's that's kind of can be thought of as a volatility event. Um, and so, I mean, if you if you get close to that deadline unresolved, you could get uh, shutdowns in government. So that can affect uh, federal workers. That's like another thing that can ripple out. You know, if your business serves federal customers or their families or just uh, their contractors downstream from there, uh, you can get kind of that that trickle event of of incomes that are at least temporarily dried up. Um, also, just obviously challenges to you know liquidity in general. Um, you actually start to get a very mild uh, pricing in for the potential for temporary default on certain treasuries, uh, which gets weird. Um, so it, basically, it's a volatility event uh, to, to kind of navigate and be aware of, uh, depending on how affected your business might be by that. Um, longer term, the question of the debt, you know, the challenge there is I think in the 90s and the 2000s, we had kind of a, a little bit of a reprieve that I think made people complacent. So, you know, if you look back over the past, um, you know, four decades, um, ever since the, the early 80s, we, we've, we've transitioned from falling public debt to GDP to rising public debt to GDP. Um, and that was somewhat offset by the fact that interest rates were on a 40-year downtrend. Mm -hmm. So you had higher and higher debt to GDP, but interest expense relative to GDP um, wasn't really going up. Right. And not anymore. You know, in the late <laughs> Yeah, not anymore, exactly. So in the in the late 80s and early 90s, actually you kind of hit like peak um, moral panic around the debt, right? That's when the debt clock, the famous debt clock went up. Uh, that's when we had, we had a third party candidate, one of the most successful in history. A uh, big part of the thing he run on was, was the debt. Um, and those people in some sense were early because you know they weren't wrong about the problem, but then you had uh, peak demographics in the late 90s, tech boom. Uh, you had, again, falling interest rates that offset a lot of that debt. But in, in, in kind of the, the past few years, you know, we, we kind of hit bedrock in interest rates and kind of go sideways to up now while you still have accumulating deficits and debts. Now the interest expense is actually going structurally up. Right. And so it, I, I think that some of the some of the aspects that maybe lulled us into complacency over the past two decades are no longer there. Um, and so I think we're probably going to return to a period much like, the, say, the late 80s uh, or, the, or the early 90s where that debt, that debt actually becomes relevant again because if you have – just ongoing increasing debt to GDP, ongoing deficits, and then you actually get a meaningful interest rate 
uh, on that, uh, that actually that actually kind of causes a fiscal spiral. You get even larger deficits to pay for those, and then there's very little agreement on what you're going to cut. I mean, you know, basically you're not going to cut near-term Social Security, Medicare uh, type of things. They might do reforms around the margins to kind of save on medical expenses. Right. They're probably not going to cut the military much considering what, what's happening geopolitically. And so you kind of get this gridlock yep. that happens. And I think I think the biggest way that that can affect people long term is that that can add to a structural inflation component. Um, because if you have very, very large deficits, again, that's kind of like a stimulus for the private sector, but not not always in a good way. Because if you're just printing that that difference – which they're not doing right now, but if they, you know, if this level of deficits and, and and debt continues, you probably would get back to a period of, of central bank or commercial bank financing, yep. uh, and that's actually quite inflationary. That's that's more money entering the economy, it's basically just pouring out into the private sector, which can give you kind of a structurally inflationary backdrop. And one of the challenges with inflation, especially if it's uh, you know above average or it's variable, some you know some some years you have higher inflation, some years you have lower inflation, is that it makes it harder to do longer term contracts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in stable periods, it's easy, you know, the ease of doing business goes up. You can make longer term contracts. You can plan out your business longer. When you have these more fluctuating inflationary periods, it's harder to do those long term contracts. You have to think more short term, which obviously adds adds friction and expense to a business. And so that that's that's how it can impact, I think, real people. So really, you know, to put it in the terms of like a lot of business people, like myself would understand is that, you know, when, when we go for financing from a traditional bank, you know, it's, you know, our debt maintenance is part of that calculation and how we're able to pay that debt back. And, you know, you're right, over the past 20, 30 years, even as our national debt has gone up, I mean, as long as we could pay it, and, you know, we, we could we could cover the interest, and it wasn't really making a big difference, who cared? Now, suddenly, we're in a higher interest rate environment. And so that interest portion cuts into a much, much bigger part of, of the budget. And unless we're willing to cut expenses somewhere, which nobody is willing to do, um, it's going to have to be paid for somehow. And that would have to be paid for through printing more money, which, like you just said, would cause more inflation. And and when you have more inflation, that that impacts a lot of business decisions, particularly long-term business decisions. Did I just did I say all that right? Did I get what you just said? Yeah, that's accurate. And, and the way I would kind of summarize that is that um, I think on average, the 2020s decade is going to have higher inflation than the 2010s decade. Um, it won't be a straight line. It wasn't a straight line in the 70s. It wasn't a straight line in the 40s. Uh, you kind of have these bursts of inflation, then things settle down. And, but I think we're probably going to see further bursts of inflation this decade. Uh, and that just makes business planning uh, more challenging. Right now, they're in a period of tightening. Right now, they can, you know, banks aren't buying treasuries. The Federal Reserve's not buying treasuries. Uh, it's really the retail public that is that is buying treasuries. But if you get back into another couple years of just uh, massive treasury issuance at this rate, mm-hmm. uh, you might have to see the Federal Reserve or commercial banks come back in as buyers, and that's that's pretty inflationary when you're running 1.5, you know, trillion dollar deficits on a just year after year after year basis. And so I, I think that's kind of a, a, cre- a key trend to at least be aware of. Lynn Alden is the founder of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy, a former engineer, electrical engineer, uh, mechanical? Yes. Electrical, electrical. engineer. Okay. Um, it's a pleasure to have you, Lynn. First of all, what is your website? Uh, LynnAlden.com. And your Twitter account is at Lynn Alden Contact. That's L-Y-N-A-L-D-E-N. Uh, Please, if you guys are watching or listening to this, Lynn's newsletter is fantastic. Her Twitter account is also great. Super resource to help you follow the economy. I always uh, try to advise my clients to to follow certain economists um, and analysts that can at least give you a 
somewhat of a picture of where things are going. And, and Lynn is definitely high on my list. So Lynn, thank you very much for joining. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you and hopefully we can talk again in the uh, future. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Great. Everybody, you've been listening to Thrive, a Paychecks podcast. My name is Gene March. Thank you so much for paying attention and following along with us. Uh, if you need any help or tips, or if you'd like to suggest a guest to come on the podcast, please visit our webpage at payx.me forward slash Thrive Topics. That's P-A-Y-X dot M-E forward slash Thrive Topics. Again, my name is Gene March. Thanks so much for listening and watching. We will see you again soon. Take care. Do you have a topic or a guest that you would like to hear on Thrive? please let us know. Visit payx.me forward slash thrive topics and send us your ideas or matters of interest. Also, if your business is looking to simplify your HR, payroll, benefits, or insurance services, see how Paychex can help. Visit the resource hub at paychex.com forward slash works. That's W-O-R-X. Paychex can help manage those complexities while you focus on all the ways you want your business to thrive. I'm your host, Gene Marks, and thanks for joining us. Till next time, take care. This podcast is property of Paychecks Incorporated 2023. All rights reserved. <laughs>